This episode of the Palisade Podcast is brought to you by Palisade Kombucha. Stanley Woodward, thanks for coming on, man. Hey, thanks for having me. How's your trip to Palisade going? It's a, a slice of heaven here. Now, the first day when you got here, I heard you on the phone, presumably talking to someone back in D.C., and they, I guess, had asked you where you were on the road, and you're like, yeah, I'm in Grand Junction. And then I guess they said, where's that? You're like, yeah, Western Colorado. But it was probably very bizarre because it's a very remote part of Colorado you're in. Do people back in D.C. know where Western Colorado is? Absolutely not. <laughs> I don't remember that conversation, but I think when people think of Colorado, they think of Denver. Of course. And so anything west of the Rockies is foreign soil. That's basically the story of my life. Whenever I'm traveling and people are, ask me where I'm from and I say Colorado, they're like, oh, Denver. Yeah, well, about four hours from there, but no big deal. Longer by train. I don't think most people realize how big Colorado is first off. And then to me, you know, I grew up back East, as you know. And so whenever you would think of Colorado, you just generically think of the Rocky Mountains, nothing in particular. Maybe you think of Vail or Aspen if you're into skiing or something. And then you might have think of Denver, but Denver is kind of like a city that's only come on the radar in the past couple decades, from my perspective, maybe through sports or something, you would know about it. But Denver's boom has been in the past decade, where now everybody's kind of moving to Denver. And just so it seems like a very top of mind place out west here. I think people discovered that, A, it's not a frozen tundra. Quite a lot of sunshine, quite a lot of uh, things to do. Not as harsh winters as everybody expects. And then, honestly, the legalization of pot, I think, really put it on the map. Where people from the Midwest and Michigan and... Well, now I guess even people from California are kind of discovering and wanting to, to come this way. Yeah, I mean, I think to put the geographical disconnect in perspective, last week I was in Dallas for a couple of days and thought that I was as far west as I could ever get from D.C. And then to get here, I had to fly through Dallas and then take another three-hour flight from Dallas to, to get here. I, I pulled up the Apple Maps the other day just to see where we were in connection with the United States. And it's, it's west. We're, we're out here. We are. And obviously, you're here to visit family. We've known each other a long time. So you may not have chosen to come here had you not known me or had the connection. So now that you're here, I'm curious, like, what do you think of this place? You've been to Denver before. What is your perceptions of western Colorado? I mean, can't really get much different than the northeast. I've been to Denver a few times. I've been to Boulder for weddings and, and for entertainment and this is different i mean this is not hard to get to right getting into the grand junction airport was a piece of cake we flew dc to dallas dallas to grand junction but once you get here it's fairly isolated and so it's very quiet i would say as compared to denver and even boulder which is a smaller city i mean compared to the east coast there is no comparison i've been to right. the coffee shop up the street here I, I love it, and uh, I will continue to tip 25% every single morning, but they haven't gotten my coffee order right a single morning. <laughs> um, but they now know my kids. Like, they know me. They know the kids, right? It's a very family-oriented neighborhood or community. To say the least. And you mentioned you got here easily, and I would challenge that because you had four t kids in tow. Is there anything you do that's easy with four kids in tow? It's all relative. 
All right. Yeah. So how is it, like, I'm curious, you know, I, I don't have kids. I'm approaching 40, let's say, kind of getting into that mindset of maybe I'm going to have kids. One of my biggest fears is how having kids will impact travel for me. I'm so used to just going and doing whatever I want, whenever I want. And to think that now, okay, I mean, even traveling with friends, right? It's like yeah. the old thing, like, oh, if you want to see if you can get along or live with someone, just travel with them. And even that is challenging when you're just with your buddies. But I can't imagine how things change when now you're, you're traveling with your, your kids, or in your case, four kids. Four kids and, uh, and my wife. Uh, I mean, it, it is going to change. Now, I travel a lot for work, as you do. And so... Uh, traveling for work is never going to be the same as even traveling with a partner. I had a flight two weeks ago, DC direct to Palm Beach, Florida. I woke up, I was getting ready. I thought the flight was at nine and then I realized it was actually at eight and it was seven fifteen, And so I had to quick jump in a Uber and get to the airport and I made my flight, right? That's not the kind of travel timing you can pull off with four kids we're checking bags we've got to have snacks got to have ipads they got to be charged you have to download all the media content because there's no internet on the plane so traveling with four kids you just have to give yourself more time to do everything now something you told me that i think is super interesting they always when they board planes it's always okay people who need extra time with families board first yeah but you guys you say no, that. We're going to board last because why would I want more time on the flight with my kids? Let's be clear. That policy is not to benefit the families. That policy is to benefit the airlines. They want the kids, the families with children onto the plane first so that they can be in and strapped in and we're not waiting to push back from the gate while the kids are getting settled. Right. Yeah. I, I, I'm absolutely not going to be the first person. In fact, the, the six of us are going to be standing at the ticket counter and they're going to say, Woodward, party of six, we're closing <laughs> the door. And I'm going to say, oh, right, that's us. Right. You yeah. know, once you get these kids into the tin can and get them strapped in, anything that's it. can happen. Right, right. I mean, who knows? Right. I, for me, I've swapped on this because in the early days of my travel career, I would always board last, and for the most part, I really wasn't traveling with a lot of baggage. I wasn't. Uh, I didn't really need the overhead space. And in fact, a decade ago, there wasn't this crazy competition for the overhead space like there is now. So I would literally just do what you described, like sit right by the gate until it was last call and then get on. Cause it's like, why do I want to, I mean, my seats is reserved, right? So why am I going to get on and then just sit there for a half hour? But now I'm completely flipped on that. Now I always want to board early. A lot of it is just to secure overhead space because everyone's pushing the limits with their bags. I myself am pushing the limit with the bag. So I want to make sure I get on there. I don't know. There's something about settling in that I do enjoy now where I can kind of just get in the zone but when I think about it, and even talking about it now, I'm literally adding an extra 25 minutes sitting in that seat that right. I probably don't have to. Right. Plus, now at most airports, you can drink at the gate, right? You can buy a to-go beer and take it to the gate and sit at the gate and drink the beer. And literally, you, know, you can't bring it on the plane with you, but you can sit and drink until they call last call and then go and get on the plane. I, I don't, you know, I'm six foot four, and so unless I'm flying first class, then I'm not settling in. See, I don't see, I, I don't get how you drink beer when you're traveling. Like, I, I, there's nothing about drink. Like, I, I'll drink when I travel, but I'm not drinking beer. Like, that's just a recipe for going to the airplane bathroom one too many times. I'm already drinking a ton of water to stay hydrated, to combat the vodka soda I'm having or whatever. The fact if I'm just going to have a drink on a plane, I have a glass of wine, 
maybe two mixed drinks. And that usually puts me in a pretty good state of mind where I can take a nap or whatever I'm reading is suddenly more interesting. I can't even, I, I honestly can't remember what, maybe I've had one beer on a flight, but I've just, I've never been a beer drinker when I'm traveling and it's strictly related to, well, I really don't want to go to the bathroom a hundred times. How do you even fit in an airplane bathroom? Yeah, I, I don't. You know, <laughs> I don't have to sit down, but it's close. I mean, I'm 6'2", and some of these regional flights out of Grand Junction, I will have to sit down. Like, I'll look at myself in the mirror, and I'm, I'm hunched over, my neck is tilted, and it's, it's difficult. Right, so now change a baby in that thing. Yeah, how do you do that? I don't. <laughs> I mean, do you just change the diaper right there in the seat? I change it in the seat, yeah. And how do people react to this? Are they... I don't pay attention. I, it, you just can't. You have to, there's only so much you can do. You know, we're not the family that brings goodie bags for the folks sitting behind us and in front of us. Um, yeah, people do that, right? They'll bring like, right. and if you're sitting somewhere and someone before the flight takes off turns around and gives you a gift, you know you're in for a shitty flight. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like we had, a, we had an Indian wedding once when, and we get there and on the seat is a bottle of water and a bag of nuts. And I was like, what? what's, this, what's this about? Because you're going to be there up. for four hours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, that's why it starts at 1 o'clock in the yeah. afternoon. Yeah, I mean, if somebody, like, if my kid is kicking the back of the seat in front of him and I'm doing everything I can to stop it, like, I'll offer to buy that guy a drink. But I'm just trying to get through the day. I can't, can't obsess over whether people are judging what I'm doing or not. Yeah, I, I go through really fra- phases of kind of righteous anger on airplanes. Some things really irritate me. Children are irritating, but it's innocent, right? So when you have a baby crying, it's, it is annoying, but it's not like you're going to blame them necessarily or blame the parents. I would only blame the parent, yeah, if the kid is kicking my seat over and over again and it doesn't seem to be anything done. But typically, kids are the least concerned on my flights. Like, I'm concerned with the adults. I have some severe pet peeves when I'm flying. The first of which being when you're deplaning and people don't understand that it's supposed to go row by row. It's and interesting. people will push up. They've forgotten. The pandemic has, has had us forget what travel etiquette is. Pre-pandemic, I think we were close to copacetic on this. But post-pandemic, they don't just push up. It's like a bum rush. Yeah. They got to get off the plane. They've forgotten that you're They're like a running back wait. hitting the hole. Right. Like, you know? <laughs> and I've had even people who are sitting by the window and I'm on the aisle. We all kind of stand up or sit down, whatever you do when the plane gets to the gate and you're waiting. And I've had people be like, oh, excuse me, I'd like to get out. Right. It's like, well, me yeah, too. me too. Yeah, like, wh- where, do you think, where do you think we're going? The other thing I've noticed is that people get on the plane and they put their bags in the first overhead container, right? They're going for their, their seat is M28, and they don't care. They're put, as soon as they get on the plane, first class, whatever it is, bag goes in the overhead, they'll get it on the way out. Oh, well, it's an interesting strategy because then you don't have to lug it all the way back right. and everything. But it causes the chaos of then people having to – they're sitting in row two, but their bag is now back at row six because all those were taken. That's kind of the downfall of boarding late. Sometimes you run that risk, and then your bag ends up a few rows back. You have to kind of push. And Anyway, so you travel a ton for work, and, and I'm excited you're on the program here. I, I'm excited you're in town because I want to hear about some of the work you've been doing. You're a lawyer in D.C. You're involved in one of the most high-profile cases of my lifetime, maybe certainly in the political realm. You just were featured in a piece on Politico, which when this episode airs, I'll make available to listeners to see. From my view, sitting here looking at you, your career has just skyrocketed in the past couple of years. And because the case you're working on is such a natural interest, 
it kind of expands into so many avenues of not only politics, but news coverage, and then just being a lawyer. I want to talk about it. Let's do it. So talk a little bit about your background. You went to law school in DC, then we'll kind of jump into the case. How did your career path go from law school to where you are now? Sure. Well, I've lived in D.C. for over 20 years now. I did college, a grad degree, and also got my law degree while living in D.C. I've been practicing law for 15 years. I clerked out of law school, and I clerked first for the D.C. Court of Appeals. What does that mean to clerk? It means you are the assistant or the the clerk for the judge. So you're like the head messenger or whatever the judge needs you do for them. So I you do you you review the briefs, you summarize the briefs, you do independent research and then you write outlines in preparation for argument. So you're like the producer of a show. You're reviewing everything and then presenting it to the judge and saying, "Here's here's the summary, here's what you should be thinking about, here's what you should maybe might say or I have no idea what it what it entails to be a producer of a show, but that is what it means to be a law clerk for sure. Okay. And then the judge who's been doing this forever is often going to have ideas as well. And so she'll send you back and say, well, can you look at this case? Or I read about this, or let's just research this. And of course the judge can also order supplemental briefing from the parties. So if somebody has missed something significant, then you can have briefing done on that issue as well. Okay. But most of your experience from, from what I understand before this was apolitical right? Wasn't necessarily involved in politics. That's fair. I went after clerking uh, first at the Court of Appeals and then at the trial court in D.C. I went to uh, an international law firm where I worked for over 10 years. And I think it's relatively fair to say that that was apolitical. I wore competing hats. I was in their white collar group focusing on something called the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, which is a law that says you cannot pay a bribe to a foreign government official to get or retain business. I also did traditional commercial civil litigation. So one of my larger cases was products liability actions against Walmart all across the nation. I also represented the largest manufacturer of e-liquid for Juul, which is the client that helped me start. Juul, the smoking device. Exactly right, the the vape device. That's the client that helped me launch the law firm because they came with me when I left Aiken Gump. And then I did, I ran the firm's housing law practice. And so we did pro bono landlord tenant work and we represented tenants who were faced with eviction. So does law school prepare you for all, you know, I went to school for journalism, right? And you, some programs will allow you to study broadcast, print, et cetera, as one study, but some make you choose, okay, I'm going to be a political reporter. So I'm going to go to school for that, or I'm going to be a broadcast journalism focus, or I'm going to be a writer. I'm going to be print. Does law, like how, you've seemed to have done so many different kinds of law. How do you, how does that, how does school prepare you for that? Or is it just take it as it comes? Well, you know, I, I, so I also teach at my, at my law school. And what I tell my students is that law school is not, common misconception is that law school is not intended to teach you the law. Law school is to, is the purpose there is to teach your students how to learn the law. And so what we do is we spend time understanding how the law is made, where the law comes from, and how to research the law. And so when we place you out into private practice or with the government or wherever, you have the tools that you need in order to understand a new concept or a new doctrine in the law. 
Now, my career trajectory is is admittedly unique. It's it's not. It would be difficult, if not impossible, for me to chart a path for someone coming out of law school to do what I've done. I took a lot of risks along the way. Some of those panned out. Some of those did not. What does that mean to take a risk in in this? career trajectory? Well, I mean, I didn't have a specialty at the law firm. And so it would have been much safer for me to go into bankruptcy and to be the best bankruptcy litigator. Just grind out once, like specialize. Essentially. That's right. That's and right. Pick and I never right. did that. Okay. I never wanted to be tied Is down. Is that unique or do most people pick a lane and stay in it? Most people pick a lane and stay in it. Okay. And so what motivated you to say, I don't want to do that. I want to keep swimming around here and uh, I mean, I, th- I don't think there's any one thing, but it can be summarized probably by observing that life is just too short to tie yourself down. And so I wanted to, I wanted to be malleable. I wanted to be flexible in the work that I was doing so that I could keep it interesting. Freedom. Sure. The ability to constantly change course to make yourself happy. That's right. Yeah, that makes total sense. That's right. And now here you are working on the January 6th insurrection trial, representing the Oath Keepers. How did you go from jumping around to maintain your freedom to now having your bio written up in Politico and, and being a, a spotlight lawyer, as I would say? Well, so I represented an Oath Keeper. We represented the leader of the Florida chapter of the Oath Keepers, who was present on January 6th, 2021, who did participate in the uh, riot that that unfolded at the Capitol that day. And I couldn't, if 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 we were to go back to January 6, 2021, and I was sitting there watching the events unfold that day, I watched the president's speech on the ellipse. I watched the news coverage as the riot unfolded. I could never have predicted that I would have been involved in the first, it was the first seditious conspiracy case to be tried in the United States in, I think, our lifetimes, I think in 40, 40 years. Seditious conspiracy is a, a 200-year-old statute, but it's been, it's been tried very few times. So wait, you're in D.C. on that day, on January 6th. I was in D.C. And I was two and a half miles from the Capitol building. What were you doing at that time? Working. Working, just at your law firm? Yes. Okay, and never in your mind were you watching this news coverage and thinking, Oh yeah, I'm going to be a part of this. Correct. There was okay. no, no, and you know, as as you know, my wife is a criminal defense lawyer, and so we have what is obviously hundreds of potential clients at 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 the Capitol that day, and we both just said this is not something we're going to end up being involved in. But then it, it's just become unavoidable. We've been involved in well, I've been involved in a number of different facets related to January six. The, the first of which, well, well, hold on. So, so what were your thoughts on that day? You know, before we get into how you became involved, just as a normal person sitting there that day, what were your thoughts watching this unfold from the law firm? I'm sure there was tons of chatter within the office and one of those moments where everybody just gathered around the TV or the internet or whatever. <laughs> well, so one of my first thoughts was, was that I was, I mean, I was disappointed, obviously. This is, what happened on January 6th is not the, the way to, to send a message, right? You can be upset with whatever cause you want. Violence is not, is not the answer, and our democracy has largely sustained political protest without violent uprising. Now, not everybody who was involved was, was violent, obviously, and so the violence is limited to pockets of groups, and we can talk about sort of where that happened and why that happened. 
I, I was also, though, a, a part of me was grateful is not the right word, but, you know, you saw what happened and it could have been worse. You saw the thousands of people enter the Capitol building and it could have been worse. And so people lost their lives and that's incredibly tragic. But I'm, I'm grateful to all those who reacted as quickly as they did to stop the riot and to, and to quell it so that it wasn't worse than, than it could have been. Okay, so you're feeling disappointment as you're watching this unfold that day, right? And then how long after that day did you, how did you become involved in this then? Especially, it sounds like, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think everyone felt, well, everyone felt different emotions. I won't speak for everyone, but for me, I felt disappointment too, right? And you're watching this and you don't know the story. I pride myself on being an objective journalist, so I'm not going to make a judgment when it, before I have the facts and everything, but I couldn't help but feel like, okay, yeah, like this is not the way, right? Okay. And so, how does this happen? How, how, does, how do we allow this to happen? Right, if you haven't been to Washington, D.C. before, you can't make a wrong turn without running into security. I think D.C. is the place I've gotten the most tickets, either via the electronic speed cameras or the very aggressive parking attendants. That was one of my first thoughts. It's like, what is going on? It was January in D.C. It was in the teens or the below teens. So not cold for your standards, but for our standards, it was freezing. My first thought was just turn, start turning the, the hoses on these, on these folks, right? It is freezing <laughs> outside. They're not going to keep trying to march up the steps when, you've got, when you're spraying them down with the fire hoses. I mean, it was, it was a very, very bitterly cold day for our standards. Right. But the Capitol is open to the public, right? Like I could just walk in at any time. So now, now you can, but during the pandemic, it had been closed down. During the pandemic, okay. it had been locked down and you could only enter the Capitol with a visitor's pass and with an escort from somebody who worked in the Capitol building. Got it. And so it was very difficult. Today, yes, you and I could walk up the front steps, walk in the door and, and wander around and explore. There are certain areas that are off limits, but as a general matter, it is open to the public. The so other, I wonder how it would have been different if it's unique that it was the pandemic and it was extra security, because in theory, it could have just been way different if people were allowed to approach. Well, no, because the other thing that was happening is that this was January 6th. And on January 20th, 14 days later, we were going to have the inauguration of the president. And so regardless of the pandemic, within that period of time, as they're building, they're constructing this elaborate structure that is the inaugural stage. And so during that time, much of the Capitol is closed as well. I see. And I will see. be closed in two years. Okay. So from your office of seeing this that day, how did you become involved? Because now you're, you have your own firm. Correct me if I'm wrong. At that time, you were still employed. You, you were employed by a law firm. No, at that time, on, on January 6th, uh, 2020, 2021, 2021. Right. January yeah. 6th, 2021, I had already started my firm. We were about a year in okay. and my practice largely focused on commercial civil litigation. I was doing this, representing this manufacturer of e-liquid for Juul, and that was consuming the, the majority of my time. We, I got involved in these cases because fast forward about three, two months, two and a half months, so March of 2021, a law school classmate of my wife and mine called and her brother-in-law had just been arrested because he was at the Capitol that day 
and he was a former State Department appointee. He'd been appointed by President Trump to work at the State Department. He got a ton of news coverage for having been the first Trump appointee arrested for his participation in the events of that day. And the question presented to us was, he's been detained pre-trial. And so when you're detained pre-trial, that can last months and months. A trial might be two, three years. In fact, his, he was arrested in March of 21. He still has not had his trial. His, his trial is set for July of 23. Wow. And so all of this time he would have been detained. But even, so isn't that saying that you're guilty before you're innocent? Well, you or, could be detained for two or, reasons. You can be detained because you're a flight risk, because they think that you've got a jet gassed up on the runway and ready to get you to a non-extraditable territory. Okay. Or you can be detained because you present a risk to society, because letting you out on the streets presents a danger to... Uh, Such as if you were a serial killer or presumed to be a serial killer or something So actually, like the statute that allows pretrial detention came about after a number of mob trials some 20, 30, I don't know, 40 years ago in which uh, hitmen were being arrested, were being released on bail, and then were going out and killing more people. And so Congress said, well, that's a problem. Let's create a law that allows us to detain people that we think are going to present a danger to the community or to an, an individual. No kidding. So that's a recent law, generally recent. Yeah. All from that's interesting. That's cool. I didn't know that. Yeah, it was it, yeah. it came from a number of violent crimes that were occurring from people and all mafia related from people that had been uh, released pending pending trial. And so this individual the the court had preliminarily detained based on the events of January 6th. The, the court had concluded that this person presented a danger to society and that what happened on January 6th could potentially happen again. I looked at that and I said, no way. Like January 6th was terrible, but it's not happening again. We're not going to allow a riot to unfold. First of all, even if it's going to happen again, the next time the certification of the Electoral College occurs is four years from now. So you want to detain him in four years to make sure he's not there? Right, yeah. Okay, but you don't get to detain him for four years because in four years there's going to be the certification of Electoral College. And then as you point out, you're innocent until proven otherwise. And so you have to show me some other evidence that makes you a danger to the community or to others in order to justify locking him up. I had never met him in person, but I argued the case. We get him released. I meet him in person. And it was a big deal at the time because so many of the defendants were being detained pre-trial, and he was one of the first to get released. Okay. And they brought you in because they thought you would have compassion for this, or it was just a friend of a friend that kind of like brought you into this to it, start? It was a friend of a friend that, that, that wanted a good lawyer to do this. And, and there, after January 6th, a lot of the defense bar community, a lot of the lawyers who practice defense work were not willing to get involved in the cases because of the nature of the of the work because of how bad January 6 was right and so I find that interesting that you were willing to get involved based on what you just told me you know you saw this day as a disappointment and yet here you are taking on a client who was participating in that you just took the words out of my mouth you know I'm assuming many of your your colleagues were like I'm going to stay away from this I don't want to get involved in any way, put my name on it, be involved with these people. Do you have a set of personal ethics that you go by? Do you, I would imagine defense attorneys go through this as well because they're 
representing people that supposedly murdered or maybe provenly murdered people. And it's, it's all in the nature of, well, our job of lawyers is to give a fair trial. So are, are you operating under that code? How do you approach that as a lawyer when you're taking clients? Well, I certainly start with the belief that everybody deserves a lawyer. It doesn't matter what crime you're accused of committing. You're entitled to legal representation. Our system of law depends upon it. I also have the luxury of being able to pick and choose the interesting cases. And so he is, was an, a State Department appointee. I thought that the court had gotten the law wrong on the pretrial release conditions. I had never done a pretrial release motion like this before. This was way more complicated than anything I had argued, but it seemed to me that the judge had gotten the law wrong and that at least somebody ought to make a run at correcting the record here. The issue interested me. The client and I uh, have gotten to know each other pretty well over the intervening three years. It's easy to say that we don't agree on many, many things, but we do agree that we ought to, we ought to be able to have a difference of opinion and discord is at the bedrock of our democracy. And so you can disagree without being disagreeable, to quote another. The idea that I would not take a case because it was too politically charged is one that I certainly contemplate, but not one that has precluded me from taking on any of this work. Okay, and now that was that case is in the past, right? Or that is that case, well, that case is set for trial in July, July 11th. We're going to try that case okay. two, three weeks. We can, I can come back on and tell you how, how it went. Okay. But since you've gotten involved with other people involved in that day, right? Because that case got a lot of attention at the time, it was already the, fo- the focus of the news media, given that he was the first State Department, first political appointee to be charged with a crime related to January 6th. Because I was successful in getting him released and because I drew a lot of attention to the way in which the government had my words misrepresented the facts concerning his prosecution. I got a lot of attention for A, being willing to fight, B, uh, fighting successfully, and C, having creative ideas, thinking outside the box about how to approach these cases. And so in August of 21, I was approached, that was the first time I was approached about taking on an Oath Keepers case. Initially, I took on the wife of the leader of the Florida chapter of the Oath Keepers. She was incredibly dissatisfied with her current counsel, was being pressured by the government to take a plea bargain, did not want to cooperate against her husband. And I felt that given the, given our relationship with the U.S. Attorney's Office in the District of Columbia, that I could probably easily structure a plea agreement for her that would not require her to cooperate against her husband. I was wrong, there was no plea offered, and they simply told us, you're going to trial in February. So this is August of 2021. She was originally set to go to trial with her husband in February of 22. The discovery in this case is immense. It's terabytes and terabytes of video and other documents. It's, it would be impossible for any one person to watch all of the video. Video um, of the January 6th. Of January 6th. Okay, yeah. so from cameras that are in the Capitol, from cell phone video, from media video. Exactly right. Everything. It's now, CCTV. how do you obtain all this? The government, the government has an obligation to give you two types of discovery in any criminal case. They have to give you any information that would be material to presenting your defense. And then they also have to give you any information that would be exculpatory to your client. As a general matter, this case has been one of open file discovery. The government has given us everything that they, that they have. 
Okay. So let me jump in there for a second, just because it's top of mind. A few, I don't know how long ago now, maybe a month ago, we had Tucker Carlson of Fox News yes. come out with all this supposedly video that was withheld previously. And there was a lot of articles that I read about how this would impact a lot of the trials, uh, not just with yours, but with others. What was there substance to that? Was the videos that were released, were they originally withheld or how did that affect you? So for my clients, no, for my clients, I have been given access to all of the video. Well, I should say for the Oath Keepers, I've been given access to all of the video that exists. Now, part of what that requires is for me to go and look at the video that I've been given to watch it all. But by the time we went to trial, I could map out where my clients were from the time that they entered the Capitol grounds until the time that they exited the Capitol grounds. I don't know whether, I don't recall, I should say. How many what, hours of video were you watching? I've watched hundreds of hours of video of January. January and I've 6th. seen some of the CCTV footage. It is not easy to see who people are. No, it's not. You have to watch it over and over again. You have to slow it down. You have to pause. And I would imagine you need to make a case like to the to the judge or jury of like, no, this this is our client. Here's why, because he's wearing the blue shirt here. How do you present this to a jury in a way they, with so many hours of you're sure. crea- editing I mean, down a timeline, basically? In the first trial, there wasn't really any question about who my client was. In the, in the first trial, which occurred in November of 2022, my client was the leader of the Florida Oath Keepers. He's six foot four. He's taller than everybody else. It's obvious who he is and, and where he is. And the issue really wasn't identity, whether or not the government could identify him in the video. The question was whether or not what he was doing was illegal or not. Uh, and so that was the argument that we made to the jury, that he wasn't there to stop the certification of the Electoral College vote. In fact, he was there to provide security for dignitaries or VIPs that were speaking that day. And when the riot unfolded, that he was there to help police. Ultimately, we were not successful at convincing the jury at that, but that, that was our defense. But you have to go through all these hundreds of hours, and you're literally just in your office watching these and trying to, I'm sure you have a team that's helping you, but. No team, me and my client. I, would, I went to the jail in the, in the weeks leading up to trial. I was going to the jail two, three times a week to meet with my client, and I would bring two laptops, I bought a second laptop. He and I would sit and watch the video, and he could take the, he could watch it back in his cell as well. And so he was watching and making notes about what he was seeing. So he did a lot of that legwork. He did a lot of the legwork, watched a lot of video. But yes, I've watched a lot. I've watched hundreds of hours of video from January 6th. So getting back to Tucker Carlson's release, uh, you know I'm a news junkie working in media. One of my biggest joys in life is waking up in the morning and opening CNN and opening Fox News and seeing the different portrayals of America, of course, diving into a number of other news organizations. Was there anything about your experience that you, you've obviously learned a lot of the facts of what happened that day. Is there anything that has surprised you in media coverage or in just public opinion that you see as a little off? For example, with Tucker's release where he claimed that this new video showed all this new perspective on what had happened. Do you find it to be merit to any of that? Yes. I mean, yes to all. I'm going to get the numbers wrong here, but I think there was roughly the, the amount of video that's been released to me as a defense attorney was either four or 6,000 hours of, of video. Tremendous amount of video. 6,000 hours. Right. 
And this was all covering just a what, a four-hour period? No, I mean, from roughly noon until, I want to say, 8 p.m. But okay, that so is one of the big issues with the Tucker Carlson video. So there's 500 cameras or something that is all recording different angles or different media and different cell phones and all this. I'd have no idea how many cameras, but there are hundreds. All right. So there's four or 6,000 hours of video that's released to me as a defense attorney. There was something like 12 or 14,000 additional hours that was not released. Some of that video was not released because it captured secure areas of the Capitol. So Vice President Pence was rushed from his office to a secure area, a secure loading area in the Capitol building, and the Capitol Police uh, decided not to release any of that video. Speaker Pelosi and I think Chuck Schumer were also removed from the Capitol building and taken to a military base nearby and the video of the route that they traveled was not released. There's no need. There, you don't see rioters or protesters in that space, and so there was no need to release that video. And then there's a couple other areas that were not released between the you know noon and, and 8 o'clock hour. And then the Capitol Police also did not release anything before noon, and they didn't release anything later into the evening and into the next day as they were sweeping the building and cleaning things out and making it safe again. Then there's the video that Tucker was playing, in particular of Jacob Chansley, uh, who was the QAnon shaman, was right. dressed up that day. I, I don't know. What I understand is that that video ultimately was eventually released, but it wasn't released to his lawyer at the time that he was. Kevin McCarthy released it to Tucker Carlson. I think that it was made available to his lawyers, but he had already pleaded guilty. I see. But that okay. is the subject of litigation. And then there's the video from earlier in the day. And so they had a bunch of what they call snow barriers that the orange plastic fencing that was around the Capitol building. Well, somebody came over before folks gathered the Capitol building and, uh, and cleared all that out, rolled it all up and threw it off to the side. There were barricades that were, that were moved off to the side. Now, I'm not a believer of conspiracies. I don't think that there was a conspiracy here, but there's some stuff that, was not, that happened that wasn't captured on video. I, I have not really focused on this video question, the issue that you're highlighting, that Tucker highla highlighted, because my focus has been on my clients and whether I have access to the video of them. Right. And anytime I've wanted the video, they've given it to me if I, because I can show that I need it in order to prepare my defense. Okay. During this trial is when you had the Politico piece that was put on you, right? The trial, so the Politico piece actually was published the same day as the verdict of the first trial. So the timing was, was pretty impeccable. I was, I was with another client. I was, in a, I was in a meeting. We got, you have to stay within 15 minutes of the courthouse while the jury is deliberating in case they have a note or a verdict comes back. So I got word that a verdict had come back. I jumped in an Uber. I went back to the courthouse. And while I was in the Uber, the Politico piece was published. What's the exhilaration like when you find out that there's a verdict waiting for you and then you jump in that Uber? I mean, it's got to be pretty... Is that what you live for as a lawyer, this rush of, ah, oh, here we go? Or is that doom, like, oh, God, here we go? The whole thing is pretty exhilarating. The, the verdict, I would say, though, it, we, were, we were anxious. I mean, we, I thought we had a shot at uh, acquittals. And, and, in fact, you know, my client was convicted of a majority of – he was acquitted of one charge. He was acquitted of damaging property at the Capitol building. But of the five defendants who were tried together in the first group, all five, char all five charged with seditious conspiracy, there were three acquittals. And so despite the fact that the Attorney General of the United States went on TV the next day and boasted about the success of the prosecution, I'd point out that only two out of the five defendants were in fact convicted of the most serious charge, 
And as a law professor, I can tell you that two out of five ain't a passing grade. So we thought there was a real shot that we were going to uh, we were going to achieve some acquittals, and, and in particular on behalf of our client, we thought we would get some acquittals. Uh, ultimately, we didn't, but we had an uphill uh, road to climb, and so we did. You know, I, I'm I'm biased, but I feel he got the best defense that he could have. Uh, had in this in this case right and so when this piece comes out the verdict comes down obviously i'm sure a lot of journalists are calling you you've told me previously that journalists from all kinds of news organizations reach out to you because this has become such a divisive issue not only january 6th but just media in general the landscape of media has become whether it is or not the perception of it is that it's very biased depending on where you're getting your news from and so I'm curious, you know, when you have these journalists calling you, uh, you don't have to name the organizations if you don't want, but do you see a difference in the way they are asking you questions, in the way they are approaching you? Does that to you show that, okay, these guys are looking for a certain answer, they're looking to portray the story in a certain way? Do you have any insight into that? Yes. You do have insight. <laughs> yes, oh, yes, I see. <laughs> yes, I see. I mean, I, I think that journalism, and especially political journalism, is is challenging. Our number one rule is that we litigate our cases in court. You know, we lose credibility if we're if we're throwing jabs at the government or, or at prosecutors by talking to the media, and even if we're an anonymous source or a source familiar with the matter, or we can't we we lose credibility with the judge and uh if we're seen as trying to litigate our case in the court of public opinion uh and and that frustrates a lot of clients a lot of clients would love to have us go on tv and speak about how uh wrong their the prosecution is uh about how wrong the process is but that's just not what we do you know if you want to reform the process go up to capitol hill and lobby congress about changing the way that prosecutions are handled. So while I'm not afraid to speak with the press, I am very careful about not wanting to litigate our issues. You want to talk about something we put in a brief? I'm all, I'm all ears. Let's talk about why we argued it this way and, and what the law is and why we think we're, we're right about this. Some members of the press respect that viewpoint. Others are solely focused on getting a source so that they can convince their editor to put something in the paper. And those folks, I'm, I'm not going to pick up the phone nearly as frequently if I feel like we're not having a genuine discussion about the merits or the legal issue. And instead, they're just trying to source me on what was filed or, or who did what or said what or, or what have you. And, and yes, I mean, it's, it's clear to me when, and sometimes the, my colleagues in the press will acknowledge this, but, but I think it's clear to me when an article is being published or printed because they know they're going to get clicks and right. that's the, you know, that's what the standard is. But I think a lot of the news outlets are genuinely trying to print uh, the news and, and trying to report accurately and fairly uh, what it is that is happening. And so we talk to folks on all sides. But you say the fact that you're saying all sides would elude that there are sides you do have organizations that are taking certain angles towards stories? Uh, I would say, so yes, I, I can't deny that. I also think that the, the all sides piece is going to vary, you know, what a media organization is going to ultimately publish is going to depend on their political bent as well. Of course, yeah. 
So you just see it altruistically, like as a lawyer involved in this case that has public interest, I should talk about the proceedings around the case. And that's why you're answering reporters calls, because as you, you said, you're not trying to negotiate in public or use the media to further your case. So you see this as just sort of like, well, I'm involved in this, so I want accurate information to get out there. I also get a lot of information from reporters. You do? So, oh, yeah. So they'll call me and say, well, I've heard that X, Y, and Z happened. Have, what do you, can you tell me about that? And I'll say, well, I know you're the first I'm hearing about this from. So I don't, I don't know what's, what that's about. And do they clam up or do then they tell you? No, I mean, they, they won't ever reveal their source. Right. And they won't give me the information that's necessary to – or that they won't give me the information that would give away their source. But they'll give me information and they – because then what we do is we talk through the process. Well, if that were really happening, here's what the Department of Justice would have to do in order to effect a search warrant or to bring an indictment or, you know, here's how the process works. So and they're so bouncing ideas off you. So they're bouncing ideas. And hoping you say something, slip up or say something or reveal something or... Well, I only agree to talk on background. And so they're not... If I do inadvertently reveal information then they're not supposed to print that and if one if somebody were to print that i wouldn't talk to him anymore and so the folks and you are I a lawyer and you can go after him yeah hey, i mean i'm not going to do that but well, there's other, i mean I'm, I'm, in, yeah. on many of my cases i'm bound to confidentiality agreements to protective orders or the cases are under seal and so i can't talk about what i know in the case and so i'm careful not to disclose any of that information but the reporters are good at what they do, and so sure, they're, they're always trying to see what they can learn. So you're doing all this in D.C., right? Like, you're in western Colorado right now. Obviously, you know western Colorado is a much more rural, conservative area. You're in D.C., just overwhelmingly majority, a liberal viewpoint. How is that affecting your career? Are you getting a lot of hate mail backlash for representing instigators of January 6th and or has it been, is there an understanding in the legal community at large that, hey, look, everyone needs a lawyer, and so I'm doing it. Like, how, how do you see this affecting you both now and in the future? I get a lot of hate mail. You do? Oh, yeah. Like email? Yeah. And if you would, what would that say? Would it just say, like, F you, or I'm going to kill you, or you're a horrible person, I've not had anybody directly say that they're coming for me and my family. I've had a lot of people tell me that I should watch my back. I've had people tell me that I'm, a t I'm the scourge of the earth, that, I, that how low can I possibly stoop. There's a lot of sexual profanity about the work that I'm, that I'm doing. So there's a lot of people that are noticing what Does I'm doing. Does that make you nervous? Uh, it doesn't, no. No. I don't have time. You're just over it. Yeah, I mean, I just, I don't, I don't have time to, uh, to focus on that. So I think people, uh, I haven't gotten any envelopes with white powder in them. That's a serious, you know, I make light of it, but that's, you know. Yeah, it happens. It happens. Because uh, the article had your picture in it. It talked about who your wife was. I mean, it wouldn't be hard for any normal person to sleuth around and figure out where you work, your patterns, even where you live, potentially. It, not very easily, in fact. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's scary. That's right. I have to have faith that our society is not going to... You think this is more intimidation rather than actual threats? I, I, think, it is, I think it is intimidation, and I think it is an exercise of free speech. Okay, yeah. You know, it's, it's school, playground-type bullying. I don't think that these folks Do you think are, that they're real people, or that they're, they're people on the other side just trying to scare you? Like someone 
not from the government, you know, but someone who is like against your client who is pretending to be a Joe Schmo, but it's actually like it's all fabricated intimidation. Or do you think it's generally like John Q who woke up, read the paper and is like, oh, I'm going to email Stanley. Right. I'm going to email Stanley and he's a real shitbag. I'm going yeah. to remind him that he's a real shitbag. But you think it's just a normal person, that it's not like an orchestrated intimidation. If it's an orchestrated intimidation, then it's not working because I don't think about it. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> but what about your career? Of- like, what do your colleagues think of you? And also, just to broaden this point, you know, then you can just kind of talk about whatever you want. But defense attorneys don't get this. Like, do people, does someone wake up and be like, oh, yeah, this person's representing a murderer. I'm going to email them and tell them what a shitbag they are because they're representing a murderer. Or is that more accepted just because it's been going on for so long where murderers need lawyers? I, I don't know. I, uh, I, I take your point. I, I suppose it's possible that the, the people who represent murderers and who are being covered in the um, uh, metro section of our local paper are getting hate mail. Um, but you don't hear that from your colleagues? or I don't. Okay. That's right. Because they don't talk to you anymore because they hate you now. <laughs> <laughs> I ha- you know, <coughs> early on... So the other case I, 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 I worked on, that we represented Dan Scavino, who is the social media director for Trump in the White House. And he was subpoenaed by the January 6th committee to come and testify before Congress. And we, uh, we were engaged, we represented him in fighting that subpoena, and ultimately he did not show up, did not produce any documents, did not appear for his deposition. Congress referred him for contempt, uh, which is their way of enforcing their subpoenas, and the Justice Department is then supposed to bring an indictment against someone who is referred for contempt, and it's a uh, mandatory minimum of one month in jail and a $1,000 fine, I think. Ultimately, the Justice Department did not bring a charge for contempt against, uh, against Scavino, and so... We got a lot of, I got a lot of hate mail after that happened as well, including a, a coll- former colleague of mine who called me and just sort of said, like, what are you doing? How are you representing this? How are you taking the position that, uh, that you are? And the legal question was, when you have, a, when you have executive privilege, uh, which is intended to, when you, have, when you have the President of the United States in the Oval Office or in the Situation Room, and they've got their finger on the button whether it's a nuclear uh, strike or whether it's taking out a, a terrorist on his balcony in, in the Middle East, you want that, or, or calling the shots at the riot on January 6th, you want that person getting unfiltered advice, good advice, bad advice, ind- whatever, indifferent. You want them to get all of the viewpoints when they make that decision. And if you have the close presidential advisors concerned that they're going to get subpoenaed to, to tell Congress or to tell the Justice Department everything that they were telling the president in that circumstance, they're not going to get that advice. If they have to worry about whether what they were saying is going to be aired in the public, they're not going to give that unfettered advice. They're going to hold back. And so the question in the January 6th committee litigation was, who gets to decide whether the privilege applies? Is it the current president, Joe Biden? Or is it the former president, Donald Trump, and the, as applied to the aides that were servicing Donald Trump? And we said, look, it's got to be the guy who was in office. You can't leave that decision 
to a political rival who has just come into office and then open the gateway to investigating all sorts of decisions that were made and the advice that was given because that would defeat the purpose. Nobody would give the advice. If when the, the, the White House changes parties, we're going to have open season on all the advice that was made during the prior administration, nobody gives the unfettered advice. And so that was the issue. And so a, a friend of mine who I respect, who was a Supreme Court clerk, said, what are, you, what are you doing? And I said, look, I just started this thing. Like, if I'm wrong about what I'm doing, I don't want to be on the front page of the New York Times because I gave bad advice. Tell me what law, what statute, what regulation says that the incumbent president, President Biden, decides when executive privilege. And, and she had no answer for me. So it just sounds like a lot of them are acting on emotion rather yeah. than on the law. Yeah. And so a lot of their backlash is emotional, not necessarily legal or procedural. But yeah. still, that's a severe threat for you because people hire people or fire people on a motion all the time. They sure do. They right. sure do. I had somebody offer to pay whatever I'm getting paid to do all of this work. They'll they'll match it as long as I stop doing it. Oh, wow. Really? That's right. So they'll pay just to get you out. Just to not take on any of the the clients that I'm working with right now. Wow. So you might as well take that, man. Just retire. Well, you know. <laughs> like what drives you to do this? The, the, the challenge, it's really, it's, it's really deep stuff. I mean, I wrote a brief here in Palisades that I filed on uh, it was midnight on Tuesday night that I was working on for a couple of days while we were here. And it's a really interesting issue. And I wish I had more time to work on it, but I'm grateful for the time that I have, and I like the pursuit of the challenge. So I don't even know what your politics are, and I think you've been very careful not to to be apolitical, yeah. uh, and I'm sure that's part of your strategy. I think that was even part of the Politico article that no one can seem to quite figure you out. That's all intentional, I'm guessing. It is. I mean, I, I, have, I have political viewpoints, but I don't, I am politically agnostic with respect to the clients that, that we represent. I don't, I don't have a view on whether their policy objectives should influence my representation, you know? So when we represent members of Congress in uh, either ethical or criminal investigations, it doesn't matter to me what their viewpoint is. We're all about the, the process. I'm a classicist in the sense that I think that politicians and members of Congress ought to represent their people. And so they are pushing the viewpoints that are favored by their constituents. And uh, I believe in that, in that system. Yeah, well, you know, I have a lot of respect for you on that because I operate much the same way as a journalist. You can have your own opinions, but journalism 101, you know, you have to put that to, a, to the side and at least in old school mentality. Or I'm not going to get caught up and say that bias never happened in journalism before because that's ridiculous. Obviously, it did. There are tons and tons of examples. But at least the textbook classroom journalism was always taught, like, check your opinions at the door, collect the facts, and then report them. Uh, fairly and and show both sides at all the times and even if you disagree with one side you still have to present it right and so journalists operate much the same way what annoys me about today in journalism is that it's so blatantly obvious what people think now especially with some of the big networks and at some of the big papers I think I could guess with pretty good accuracy what a journalist thinks just by the way they're writing a story, by where they include facts. You know, a lot of journalism is you can include everything in the story, both sides, but you can construct the article in a way that is still slanted and biased. 
And that's just as easy as do I include this fact in paragraph two or do I put it in paragraph 20 that's on the jump on page on the next page? And so what annoys me about it is that people are so openly biased today and it's almost like it's being rewarded because that kind of opinion journalism sells so well today. I'm curious, maybe you see that in lawyering too, where there has been a degradation of the profession in the sense that people don't feel the need to hide their bias. And in fact, they're often rewarded for their bias in some ways. I, I think it's fair to say that in the last 18 months, when I put my name on the bottom of a brief, I, I'm respected for being, for, for being a political, you're, there's always gonna be two sides of an argument, otherwise we wouldn't be in court. And so it's not the case that I'm gonna write a brief and at the end of the day, the judge is just going to automatically agree with me. I'm, I'm advocating for a cause, but I'm, I think it's fair to say that I am respected for advocating for a cause fairly and arguing the law as applied to the facts as opposed to arguing the law because that's the way my political view influences the, the outcome. Do you feel that you're unique in that? Um, I, I mean, I, I'd like to believe that there are others out there who take my You'd approach. You'd like to believe. But I, you know, there aren't many. There aren't many. Yeah, but doesn't that annoy you? And how do you, as a law professor, I would say that your students are very lucky to have you then. Well, it's, it's interesting you mention that because I, the class I'm teaching right now is labor and employment law. And historically, the political views of management versus workers' rights has been very politically decisive. And so when you look at the employment law or, or labor and employment law as applied to facts, the management view, the employer view is going to be very jaded. The employee view is going to be very jaded. It's an area of work where, you know, if you go and work for a union for a number of years and then you say, well, I've done this and now I've decided I'd like to go and work for an employer, the, the employer won't hire you and vice versa. If you go and work in the management side of labor relations, you do that for five or 10 years and decide, well, I've done this, but I really think my heart is with the, with the union. The union won't hire you. It's just very, very divisive. Interesting. And so we talk about, you know, what is, what is the purpose of leveling the playing field? Up front, I have to acknowledge that you're going to have two sides coming at this and they're intentionally going to be butting heads, but we're here to level the playing field. And sometimes the law is going to benefit the, in, the employee you know, as, as is the case with uh, at-will, uh, the degradation of at-will employment and, and the ability to, to claim that you can only be fired for cause. And sometimes the law is going to benefit the employer, as is the case with copyright protection and, and trade secret protection, not copyright, trade secret protection. So, sure, yeah. I mean, and, and potentially I lose clients because I'm not willing to take the uh, hard political argument we're going we're gonna to take the law and we're going to apply the facts. And that's, that's all you're getting us for. Right. And, I, and I'm sure you may lose clients who just see your past work and say, I'm staying away from this guy because he represented so-and-so. But that with any kind of law or any kind of profession could be the case. I think that's probably right. And it, it is just, you know, we're a small shop. And so it's not like we need 100 clients. And so we're, we're able to be selective in who we take on. But I will tell you that we get calls from both sides. We're not just representing conservatives. We represent liberals and conservatives alike. Well, I know you got to get out of here, but I, I want to run one more thing by you because I recently had what I would say would be an epiphany. I, I actually wrote an article, an editorial about this for the Grand Junction Sentinel about jury duty. 
Now, for my whole career, I've been traveling and moving and, and been kind of a moving target. So I've always been able to either not get summoned or get out of it very easily. But here in Little Mesa County, sure enough, I get wrestled into doing jury duty. And it was one of the most interesting days and experiences that I've had in a long time. And I just want to share some of it with you and also talk to you about it because the th craziest thing about it was is that in the morning, I think my call time was 8 a.m., I'm on my way there and thinking to myself, oh my God, I have so much to do today. I got to write this story. I got to make kombucha. I got to run around. It's like, but I'll most likely be back by 9.30 and then I can do that. I'm planning my day as if I'm going to get dismissed from jury duty. And then... Five hours later, I'm literally sitting in the box as a woman is on the stand crying, retelling her story of some abuse case that had happened. And it was just so shocking to me that I guess just like from movies and TV, you get a certain sense of, of the process, which definitely comes alive when you're in the courtroom because it is so interesting especially if you like drama and, and you like kind of this, these arguments that are being made by both lawyers and things like that, the courtroom drama, let's say. But the craziest thing is just how important this day was to the people in the trial, obviously the defendant and everything, but also, you know, the lawyers and the judge, they're presiding over this. But for me, the guy who's making the decision, a couple hours ago, I'm driving to work listen to a podcast thinking about like, oh God, here we go. How am I going to get out of this? And now I'm really tasked with making a huge decision for someone that's going to impact their life. And that was just so crazy to me. I really enjoyed the experience once I submitted to it. In fact, I went through the series of motions where originally I was like, okay, I'm listening to everyone else make excuses. And then I kind of start feeling bad because it's like, yeah, I got stuff to do, but all right, this single mom obviously needs to be excused more than me and this and that. And before I know it, you know, I'm narrowed down to the final 15, the final 13, and all of a sudden I'm being selected. A lot of my journalism training came out in the sense of just being very neutral, very objective in the sense that they're asking you all kinds of questions. And once I made it through, you almost get this investment in the case. And not only that, you start to feel like a little bit of a celebrity because now the bailiff is escorting you into the back jury. You're in the deliberation room. It just feels really important and really official. And then obviously once the case starts, you feel the emotion, at least in mine was a domestic abuse case. So you feel that emotion and you realize the role that you're playing. And it's not some traffic violation. You know, you are literally involved in an important matter. Long story short, for me, 20 minutes in, the case got dismissed right. because somebody revealed something they shouldn't have that wasn't approved pretrial. I got to tell you, man, I was really disappointed. I thought of you a lot during it because this is your world every day. And the lawyers were funny. They were witty. And just so I guess like I'm on a PSA campaign now where I'm like trying to encourage people to do jury duty because it's really interesting and it's such an insight into what happens every day that we have no idea about. How long was your trial supposed to last? Two days. Two days, yeah. And well, I mean, so mine was, my first one was eight weeks. Eight weeks. Right. Wow. And same jury the whole time. Right. One of the things I don't think people realize is how much goes into the jury selection. I mean, I was probably there 
for, we had a lunch break, but just like the time being there was probably five, six hours. The trial, as I mentioned, was only about 20 minutes before it was a mistrial and dismissed. But a good four, four and a half hours of that was just all jury selection and them going around to every person and asking them, uh, a lot of it very procedural and very repetitive, but asking pretty just specific hard questions about what you think, in, in this case, about domestic violence, whether you would trust police officers' word more than an everyday citizen, questions that are, are very, they seem like traps. And then even at the end, if you don't eliminate yourself by saying something like, I hate cops and I would never believe them, you, the, the, then the lawyers can actually just pick you at random and you know they have I think they had five picks peremptory strikes right where they can just like I don't like the the looks of this guy or like I don't I don't like his vibe so let's just get him out of here and for you as a lawyer something that struck me was just how important that process and now it makes sense to me how long it took because we're a two-day trial you're an eight-week trial if you don't get a jury that that's so important to you to get a jury that you think is going to be maybe favorable is the wrong word but fair well, that's true, but it's harder for the government because the government has the burden of proof. They have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt the crimes that have been charged, and, they and, and they're required to do that unanimously. And so all 12 members of the jury have to come back to convict. From a defense lawyer's perspective, I just need one holdout. I get one holdout. I have a hung jury. The case gets thrown out. The government can charge it again, but they often don't. It's... It, it took us, I think, five days to pick the jury. Five the days. Oath Keepers and the people that made it were there all five days as well. No. Um, and so what we did was there were, there were 150 people in the panel. They came in about a month before the trial started and filled out a, a questionnaire. The questionnaire had to be, I don't know, 60 pages. And they filled out the questionnaire. We, the attorneys, got the questionnaire. And so we got to go through and try to strike people and a lot of people get stricken for two reasons. One, because they have travel arrangements that had been made already. Of course. We're not going to make you cancel your flight to London. Uh, and two, because of financial hardship. You can't afford to sit on a jury. Your job is hourly or uh, you're taking care of your kids or, or what have you. Uh, we, get to, we get to strike those people ahead of time. And then they came back and we brought them in 40 a day, 20 in the morning and 20 at night. And we'd go through... And I think we needed a panel of 44, and then the government and the defense counsel got peremptory strikes. Wow. And how many do you end up with? 12? 14. 14. No, 16, including four alternates. Okay. Did you have alternates on your trial? We did, but we didn't know who. So I th I, I'm thinking, right. if I remember, it was approximately, we had 20 people in the box, and then 12 of us would actually make the decision at the end. Right. So imagine going eight weeks through this trial, hearing all of the evidence, all of the emotions, and then being told, thank you very much, uh, Mr. McGough, your, uh, your service is over. You're not actually going to weigh in on this. You are an alternate jury. So maybe this is why people hate jury duty. I think they hate jury duty because it takes so much time, because it's hard to, I think most trials, you end up wondering, like, why are we here? Like, either the facts are so obvious, right, or the, the, the cause is unsympathetic. And that's true of civil cases as well. So few cases actually go to trial. Now, in, in this case, it was easy to go to trial because we were not made a plea offer. There was no, you can plead guilty to the indictment. Well, I might as well roll the dice and see if I can convince a jury not right. to convict my, my client.
Right. There's no incentive for me not to go to trial. Do you, do you think it's cool for people to just get out of jury duty? There's an old saying that's like the only people that do jury duty are those who are too stupid to get out of it. Right. I really, I, I did think that going in. I've changed my mind a lot. I, in fact, look forward to my next summons. And I believe that I'll probably get eliminated because I'll be too anxious. You'll be too, yeah. yeah. You'll be the eager beaver. Like the lawyers will be like, so you guys look for people like that that are like, oh, like, I'm stoked to be on this case. For and sure. you're like, you're out of here. Right. <laughs> you want people that are like kind of miserable but willing to take the punishment. What are you looking for? Uh, it's not that it's, it's if you know it, you know, you'll know it when you see it type. For me, I mean, the eager beavers, I definitely want, I'm concerned about. Typically, they are wanting to administer the law. If you think about these January 6th cases, right, I lived, I was two and a half miles from the Capitol building on January 6th. I was watching the events unfold. I was watching, is this going to turn into a massive uh, uprising and am I might have to get my family in the car and drive out of town. Like, what, what's, what's going on here? What's happening next? So when you think about the eager beavers on those trials, people who wanted to sign up for an eight-week trial to a judge, a participant in the events of January 6th, they just want to convict the guy. Like, right. they, they want to make sure that this person is going to jail for a long time. They have time. an agenda. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's a, it'd be a little bit different if you're doing a trial that nobody's ever heard of the facts or circumstances giving rise to it. You, you didn't know the victim. You didn't know... Correct. Right. So you were coming in. It's into not this. a high profile case. Right. Yeah. yeah. So in a high profile case, the eager beavers are, are coming off. Which is kind of the concern that everyone talked about with indicting Trump in New York, because how do you put together a jury who has no biases? Everyone knows Donald Trump. And when you have these high profile figures, good luck selecting a jury that's completely raw and, and empty and right. green. Right. You're right. I mean, yeah. you're not. You're not going to find a jury who is has no opinions. That said, I was surprised at the number of D.C. residents who, when asked, said they knew nothing about January 6th. Really? Yeah. Do they you remember the lying. events of the Capitol? No. No way, dude. Do you watch any news? I don't watch any news. Why? It's depressing. Yeah, or maybe people just have bigger fish to fry. Like you point out, they're busy putting food on the table or right. they're just not wrapped up. In, because the news can be a soap opera. Right? That's right. Like I always say to people, especially if people start to get a little depressed, check the news once a week. Old school journalism, one of the benefits of that was it wasn't so reactionary because you had to wait till the next day to publish the piece. So right. you had this time to reflect, to think. Now it's like if you don't publish it within the first hour, facts or no facts, you're behind. So there's this temptation to get things out quick. It's reactionary. It's people taking on loads of information without a lot of reflection. I always give the advice, look, check in once a week. You might miss something, probably not. Most things move and unfold pretty slow, even though there's an appearance of, of rapid development. Most of the rapid development is speculation. That's why it's called a quote unquote developing story, AKA we don't know what happened and we're figuring it out on the fly. So just avoid that. Just check in and you'll figure out what happened I agree. once people know. I don't get news alerts on my phone. You shouldn't. Oh, God, no. I don't. Now, I am a voracious consumer of news. I read three newspapers every single morning, whether I'm on vacation or not. I'll generally scroll through Twitter a couple times a day just to see what's – I'll catch the trending things on there. But I don't get news alerts on my phone. It's a really – it's a smart strategy. And you need to it's, – it's basically research for you. Correct. It but is definitely part of my job to know what's going on in current events. Totally. I, I really try and recommend people to read the news – because reading is a much different process than watching the news with all the background music and all the pomp and circumstance. 
and to, yeah, just slow down. It can be overwhelming. Yeah. But, dude, I could talk to you all day. I really appreciate you coming by, spending some of your time with us. Maybe we'll have you on in the future, and we'll be following your career here in Pali. I hope you have a good time. Enjoy Pesh tonight. I hope to be back soon. Thanks for coming on, buddy. Thanks for having Stanley me. Stanley Woodward. All right. Bye, everybody. Riding the terrain, flying high up once again. Got my crew sitting healthy and my boo living wealthy. Level 99, never settle in my mind. So I pedal and I climb up the pedestal and find almighty weapons. So I calm lightly step into the castle, satchel, tackled, wrestled. Down the corridor where I'm grounded through the floor. Roundhouse into my core, down, out, and through the door. Sword down at my side. I gotta round up and ride. Face boss, break jaws till I take off. Face off, stop and swing my series. Strike. This is it. Take the title, disappear in the night to the whole wide world. Got the keys to the kingdom overseas with the wisdom guaranteed that my rhythm hit the Slay the boss in the castle when we cross final battle. Then I walk out and travel to the Got the keys to the kingdom overseas with the wisdom guaranteed that my rhythm hit the Slay the boss in the castle when we